We read these words. And as Jesus sat upon the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? The point to be emphasized in this reading is that Jesus did not rebuke the disciples for seeking a sign. He didn't say, don't be silly, there'll be no sign given to you, don't be crazy. He proceeded to give them reasons for expecting the things about which he was seeking to come to pass. And it is the same now. God does not rebuke us for seeking a sign or rebuke any man. God does not expect blind faith. When some person comes along and they close their eyes like this and they say, I don't understand anything, but I have tremendous faith in God and I know everything's going to be all right and if there is a heaven, I'm going to get there and so forth. God does not operate in that way at all. He not only does not expect blind faith, but he expects your faith and mine to be founded upon adequate and factual evidence. I want to give you a case in point to show you that we're not talking through our hat, as it were. If any of you have Bibles and wish to turn this up, you will find it in the second book of Kings at chapter 20, verses 8 and 9. You remember that King Hezekiah, one of the righteous kings that reigned in uh, the nation of Israel and Judah, became ill. And he was told that he would recover from his illness. But this didn't satisfy King Hezekiah because he asked for a sign. And this is how the record reads. And Hezekiah said unto Isaiah, What shall be the sign that the Lord will heal me, and that I shall go up into the house of the Lord the third day? And Isaiah said, This sign shalt thou have of the Lord. You remember that the sign was that the sundial would go back 10 degrees. And as Isaiah said, it's a light thing for the sundial to go forward, but for it to go back, this was a very important sign. And this sign was given to Isaiah, even though the mouth of I uh, to Hezekiah, even though the mouth of Isaiah the prophet had personally told him that he was going to be healed of his illness. Isaiah was not rebuked for requiring of God an additional sign that he would know whereof the Lord had spoken unto him that it would come to pass. Now, my friends, we intend tonight to show you that the age of signs of God is not past. God, in fact, has provided this generation particularly with a sign or a test so that all men everywhere who have ears to hear and eyes to see can see that the Bible is a confirmation, a living testimony of the Word of God, and that it is true. And so now I propose to show you what this sign, this test is, and show you how it has worked out in actual fact. The sign, or the test if you like to call it that, now we're testing to see whether or not the Word of God really is true or not, or whether this book that we call the Bible is a pack of fables, Jewish folklore, and mythology. 
Don't we want a sign? We are just the same as the disciples that came to Jesus. We say, Lord, show us a sign. Give us something to hang our hat on so we can have the faith that you require. And so this is the sign. And it is simply this, my friends. You don't have to be a college graduate to figure this out either. And that is the ability to foretell the future. That's the test. And that's all there is to it. Now just think for a minute. If anybody in this room had the ability to foretell the future even for five minutes, really knew what the future held, even for one minute, he could soon possess all the wealth of the world. Because he could go down to the stock market, or the cotton market, cotton future market, and if he really knew what the price was going to be five minutes hence, the other fellow didn't, he could soon corner the market and go on to greater things, and finally he could corner every bit of wealth there was in the world. It's a very simple test. The ability to foretell the future. Now you can see that none of us have that ability. There's no man on the face of this, this earth, no matter how much he's paid, whether he be a fortune teller, uh, operating out of a local coffee shop, or whether he be a very high-priced economist in the Pentagon, he does not know what the future holds. This ability, this test, by which God wants all men everywhere to know that what he speaks is true is reserved unto God himself. And God has devoted about four chapters in the middle of the book of Isaiah to show you that he himself declares that this is the test. This isn't something I dreamed up. This is something that is written down in the pages of Holy Scripture to show all men that God has a test whereby they can prove the veracity of the Scriptures. So I ask you to open your Bibles at the 41st chapter of Isaiah and verse 21 and listen to this. Now this is the test, remember, that God has given. He says in verse 21 of the 41st chapter, Produce your cars, says the Lord. Bring forth your strong reason, says the King of Jacob. Let them bring them forth and show us what shall happen. If these people are so smart, let them come along and show us what shall happen. That's futurity. Let them show the former things, what they be, that we may consider them and know the latter end of them. Or declare us things for to come. Show the things that are to come hereafter. There's a challenge hurled by the prophet Isaiah to all men living in that day and right down to this day. He says, show the things that are to come hereafter. If you want to be as God, is the implication, that we may know that ye are God's or as God. That is the test. In the 42nd chapter of Isaiah, verse 8, I am the Lord. This is my name, and my glory will I not give to another. This ability is not passed on to the church, or to clergy, or to economists, or to fortune tellers. Neither my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things are come to pass, and new things do I declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Again, God declares 
that he is the only one. The reason he can prove that he is the Lord, the, the king of the universe is, that he reserves the right to himself to predict and foretell and prophesy concerning future events. Chapter 44, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, the king of Israel, and his redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. And who as I shall call and shall declare it, and set in order for me, since I appointed the ancient people, and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show unto them. We don't want to waver the point. We want to touch on one more verse of the same kind in the 46th chapter of the book of Isaiah, beginning at verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. This is God's own declaration of a test that you and I can apply as to whether or not he really is the true and living God. I am God, and there is none like me. Why? Declaring the end from the beginning. That's the test that he is God. And from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Now there is a test, my friends. God's ability to foretell the future is the test that he himself declares to show all men everywhere that he indeed is the only true and living God. Now how did he go about to show us how to apply the test? It's all right standing up and saying, I have the ability to foretell the future, and I have this and I have that, but the next step in the test is, show me. Let's see the results of your declaration. So God has given us now a test whereby we can find out whether or not this ability which he claims is a true one. Now we wish to note this. If we can find a Bible witness, because this is the book that he declares he wrote, if we can find a Bible witness that tests God's ability to predict the future, then have we not got the required evidence that he himself declares to show that he is the living and true God and that his word is reliable? Well, fortunately for us, God has declared a witness. He has given us a means whereby we may test his declaration of the ability to foretell a future, as happens to be interlocked in these same verses in the book of Isaiah. Now I wish to quote from the 43rd chapter of Isaiah at verse 10. But first I want to quote the first verse of the 43rd chapter to let you know who God is talking with in this case. He is talking to the nation of Israel because in verse 1 of the 43rd chapter he says, But now thus saith the Lord that created thee, O Jacob, and he hath formed thee, O Israel, fear not. So he's talking to Jacob and to Israel, people that we now call the Jewish people. Now in verse 10, he gives us the reality of the text. And this is what the prophet Isaiah says, speaking uh, the words of God. 
ye, that is the nation of Israel, are my witnesses, saith the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen. Why? That ye may know and believe me, and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither shall there be after me. So who are the witnesses? What test can we apply? It says here that ye, that is the nation of Israel, are the witnesses that God has given us so that we will have the required evidence on which to base our faith. And he repeats the same thing in the 44th chapter to show it wasn't just a passing fancy. Again, in the first verse of chapter 44, he says, Hear ye now, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. So again, he's addressing Jacob and Israel. And in verse 8, he says, Fear ye not, neither be afraid. Have not I told thee from the time, and have declared it? Ye are even my witnesses. Is there, any, is there a God beside me? Yea, there is no God. I know not any. So the requirement that God himself has given to all men from this day on as a witness to his veracity and his ability to foretell a future is the nation of Israel. Ye, he says, are my witnesses. Now we ask ourselves, how has Israel or the Jewish people witnessed to this reserved ability of God to foretell the future and therefore to prove the veracity of his word? How, what on earth have the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, got to do with proving the veracity of the word of God? Well, let's have a look at this nation of Israel for a minute, and you will see that it indeed is an exceedingly vital witness in this connection. If you will turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, the 26th chapter, you will see that God has dealt with this nation of Israel in a very unique way. In the 18th verse of the 26th chapter of Deuteronomy, we read this. And the Lord hath avouched thee this day to be his peculiar people, as he hath promised thee, and that thou shouldest keep all his commandments, and to make thee high above all nations which he hath made in praise, and in name, and in honor, and that thou mayest be an holy people unto the Lord thy God, as he hath spoken. So this nation of Israel occupies in the mind of God an exceedingly unique position. To what other nation did God avouch them to be his peculiar people? To what other nation did he promise that he would make their name a praise, and an honor, and in the high places of the earth? my friends, to no other nation, saving this nation of Israel, the witness of his veracity. Now how, why is it? This is the book of Deuteronomy. This was written uh, a long time after the Jewish nation started. Why is it that God did make these promises to this uh, nomadic nation? We have a map here on the 
And the, as you know, the history of the Jewish nation starts with a man by the name of Abraham. Abraham was born, I hope most of you can see this map. Jacob again 
when he came out of Paden Aram and blessed him, and God said unto him, Thy name is Jacob. Now this was the grandson of Abraham, you'll remember. Thy name shall not be called any more Jacob, but Israel shall be thy name. And he called his name Israel. So the grandson of Abraham, whose name was Jacob, had his name changed by God to Israel. And the word, of course, means a prince of God. And God said unto him, that's this new man, Israel, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall be of thee, and kings shall come out of thine loins. And notice, and the land. Now there was two there was two parts of the promise, more than that, but there was two I want to draw your attention to tonight. One was the promise concerning the people, the descendants of Abraham, and the other was the promise concerning the land on which he stood. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, to thee will I give it, and to thy seed after thee will I give this land. This, of course, was the land which had been originally promised to Abraham, and in which Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob all dwelt. So we have a picture here where the people of Israel, the Jewish people, are inseparable in the promise which God gave from the land. There's no use talking about the people unless you link it very tightly to the land. And there's not much use talking about the land as a, as a promise unless you also talk about the people to whom it was promised. The two parts of the promise are inextricably linked, linked together. So if anybody wants to know whether or not the Jewish people have title deeds to this land, you can tell them that they have, because it was promised by none other than the owner of the land, God himself, and that they were going to be given uh, this land as an everlasting possession. Now you remember how that Jacob, or Israel as his name was changed to, had twelve sons, one of whom was Joseph. Joseph was sold down here into the land of Egypt. And there, after some persecution, he became a mighty uh, president of the land of, of Egypt. And you remember how the, because of famine, the other sons of Jacob eventually came down there and they settled there and became a great nation in this land of Egypt. But as time went on, they became so prosperous that Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, decided that they should have further oppression. And so God appointed Moses to lead them out of this land of Egypt through the wilderness of Sinai and up here back into the promised land. Why is it called the promised land? It's called the promised land because it was promised to the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of these children of Israel. Now I want to again read you something which shows you the unique position that this nation, which was led out of Egypt by the hand of Moses, occupied in the mind of God. And I can do no better than refer you to the seventh chapter of Deuteronomy, at verse 6. Now listen to this concerning the nation of Israel. For thou art an holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Now wouldn't it be wonderful if this was said of the United States people, that God had chosen the people of the USA to be a special people above all nations of the earth. You'd feel pretty good about that, I think. 
Well, this is what God said concerning the nation of Israel, that they were to be a special people, and in his eyes, above all other people, on the face of the earth. Well, you'll remember that they finally did settle themselves in this promised land. But before they got there, they were given the Ten Commandments, and they were also given a program for themselves for the future. Before they got to the Promised Land, when they were still in the wilderness, God laid before them two forks in the road. On the one hand, he said, Now, if this, if this my people are righteous, you're going to be blessed in your basket and blessed in your store. You're going to have many things good happen to you. Your children are going to prosper, and all things are going to work out very well. This is recorded in the 28th chapter of Deuteronomy. That was one fork in the road. The other fork in the road, though, was quite different. He said to these people, Now, if you are unrighteous, then I want to read you, and I want you to pay particular attention to what was said if they were unrighteous, because we now know, of course, looking back, that they were unrighteous. And this is what God said would happen to them if they were unrighteous. This, this is what he said. The Lord shall scatter thee among all people, from the one end of the earth even to the other, and there they shall serve other gods which neither thou nor thy fathers have known, even of wood and of stone. Now listen. And among these nations shalt thou find no ease, neither shalt the sole of thy foot find rest. But the Lord shall give thee there a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and sorrow of mind. And in verse 37, he says, And thou shalt become an astonishment, a proverb, and a byword among all the nations whither the Lord shall lead thee. If they were righteous, they're going to be blessed. If they were unrighteous, they were going to be scattered throughout all nations of the world. They would become a hissing and a byword. They would have no rest and no peace. Well, the result was that after that, they went into the Promised Land, and after a period of judges, they set up a kingdom. And for a while, under King David, particularly in the early part of Solomon's reign, they were righteous, and they did prosper, and they were blessed in their basket and blessed in their store. And in fact, a miniature of the kingdom of God was actually set up in that tiny land. But, alas, they became evil. Evil practices entered their minds, and unrighteous deeds became the order of the day. And because of their wickedness, the kingdom was destroyed at the hands of the Assyrians and Babylonians, and finally the Greeks and the Romans also, and the people, in fact, were scattered throughout all nations of the earth. Now we come to the test of futurity again. There's a brief history of this people. Now shall we apply the test of the Word of God on this point, because this is very significant. There's two or three significant factors here that I want to draw your particular attention to. And the first one is this. My friends, it was literally true that the Jewish people were scattered throughout all nations of the earth. You can go right now 
to Finland, Madagascar, Indonesia, China, Brazil, Canada, the South Sea Islands, Australia, Egypt, Europe, uh, Russia, Finland, uh, Norway, Nor Norway, Iceland, doesn't matter where you go, you can find Jews today scattered throughout all nations of the earth. Every nation, virtually, that is represented in the United Nations, over 110 nations, have Jews still in them. Now this is a very significant thing, that this people, who, who were very small in number relatively, and who settled in this land several thousand years ago, now, in our day, are scattered throughout all nations of the earth. So if that was all there was to it, it would be a remarkable fulfillment of the ability of God to foretell a future. But fortunately for us, and fortunately for a buttress to our faith, it's only a very small part of what really did happen. And the next significant factor is, and I want to refer you to the um, 26th chapter of Leviticus in this connection, because re you remember that we said that the people could not be divorced from the land. If you talk about the people, you must also talk about the land. So let's talk about the land. In the 26th chapter of, Le of Leviticus, at verse 32 and 33, God made mention of the land. And he said, if they were wicked, he said, I will bring the land into desolation. And your enemies which dwell therein shall be astonished at it. I will scatter you among the heathen and will draw out a sword after you. And your land shall be desolate and your cities waste. Now this has actually been fulfilled. No land in the history of the world has had the utter desolation placed upon it of this land of Israel. When the Turks got a hold of it in the Middle Ages, they put a tax on anybody that had a tree growing. This was one, now if you have a car, you pay tax. But in those days, if you had a tree, you paid tax. And every single tree you had, on that you paid a tax. Now, people were just as smart then as they are now. If you want to avoid paying the tax on liquor, you stop drinking liquor. If you want to avoid the tax on having a tree in your backyard, you cut down the tree. And so the people went through the land and cut the trees down, absolutely decluded it, and left the entire area open for erosion, desolation, and it became indeed a howling, desolate wilderness. So here is fact number two, that this very prophecy concerning this land, which, was, which at that time was described, mind you, as a land of milk and honey, a blessed land. The spies came back and had grapes. They had to put them on their shoulders to carry the bunches. They were so heavy. Now, at this point of time, God said that it would become desolate, utter desolation, and their enemies would even be astonished at how desolate it was. Is that not a fulfillment of prophecy? If it isn't, I don't know what is. But even that is only a small part of the story. Now we're coming to more interesting parts. And I want to refer you now to an exceedingly interesting part. And this is a prophecy which is contained in the 31st chapter of Jeremiah. My friends, what do you have to do to prove something to somebody? You know, sometimes it's the hardest thing to get something into the skull of somebody who doesn't want to understand it. So... If you want to prove to them that you're telling the truth, you get up and you, in court or someplace, and you kiss the Bible or you hold your right hand up and you tell them you're going to tell the truth. You make an oath. 
perhaps this year, and you swear that you'll tell the truth. Or you'll do something else. You'll post a bond that you're going to perform what you say. Now God, again, wanted to give you and give me a sign that what he said was, was going to come to pass, in fact, really was. Now look at this remarkable sign that God gave in the 31st chapter of Jeremiah. This is in verse 35 and 6. Now this is God's sign of his truth. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. Now you can imagine the panic that would ensue tomorrow morning if the sun failed to rise in the eastern part of this state. For some reason it was dark, and when it was supposed to get light, it didn't. They can tell you tomorrow morning the sun will rise at 5.37 or some such time. Now supposing it didn't, for some reason or other it didn't, the panic that would come on the people of this USA would be just simply frightening. It's always come up, and it always will. Because God says so. Now he says, you know how constant the sun is, and the moon too. He says, if those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel, that's the Jewish people, shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Now this simply means that this Jewish nation were going to retain their identity as long as the sun and the moon endure. Now my friends, there's just simply no other phenomenon like it in the history of the world. Think of it. Where are the Spartans, the Latins, the Romans, the Assyrians, the Mongols, the Teutons, the Saracens, all these people that held sway over vast areas of the face of the earth. Where are they? They've all been assimilated. They've all been integrated. They've all lost their identity. You can't find them anymore. But God said there was one nation, a peculiar nation unto him, that wouldn't disappear that would retain their identity, that would not cease as long as the sun and the moon endure. And that nation was the nation of Israel. And so here in 1963, even though these people were scattered throughout all nations of the earth, and the persecutions they have suffered down the centuries, almost beggar description, they've been persecuted, pillaged, derided, eroded, expelled from one land, penniless, and thrown into another land. They've been put in ghettos. They've suffered the Inquisition. They've been barred from professions and stripped of money. And just not long ago, six million of them were put in gas furnaces. And in spite of all that, my friends, this people have retained their identity in the some 100 countries to which they have been scattered. Will anybody go forth from this hall and say that we have no proof of the Word of God? 
that it's all one gigantic swindle, hoax and fraud, and God has left us no witness at all as to whether or not he is the only living and true God. But again, if that was all we had, it would be a living, vibrant witness to the authenticity of the Word of God. But this, my friends, is really only the start of the witnessing of this marvelous people. Because an even more extraordinary fulfillment has taken place before our very eyes. And for this fulfillment, I want to have you turn to the 30th chapter of Jeremiah. For there in verse 3, the prophet Jeremiah says, again foretelling the future, mind you, Lo, he says, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will bring again the captivity, or as the Revised says, restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, saith the Lord, that's the Jews, and I will cause them to return to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall possess it. Chapter 31, verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd doth his flock. Can you get language much plainer than that? That although these people were scattered throughout all nations of the earth, the word of God, predicting the future, says that they will be gathered back, and strangely enough, not to Brazil, not to Iceland, not to the South Sea Islands, but right back to this very place from which they were scattered, namely the province of Canaan, the land of Palestine, the nation of Israel. Is not this a remarkable fulfillment of the Word of God? Now again, and our time is getting along, I want to refer you to the 37th chapter of Ezekiel, where this famous vision of the dry bones occurs. Now, this is, depicts the one bone coming to the other until the skeleton was formed and flesh came on the skeleton and the nation stood and became a great nation. Now about all most people, and good church people too, know about this prophecy in the 37th chapter of Ezekiel is they may have heard a spiritual song, folk song, something about ankle bone coming to shin bone and shin bone to thigh bone and something like that. That's all we know about it. Haven't got any idea what it all is, it means at all. They do know the song, however. Now this 37th chapter of Ezekiel depicts a progressive return of this nation which had been scattered throughout all nations of the earth back to the land of Palestine. And I want to briefly <laughs> the progress that this nation has had in coming back to the land of Israel. And it really started about the year 1860 when a small group of European Jews, some in England, France, and Germany, formed an association called the Universal Israel Alliance. This association had as its purpose the resettlement of colonies of Jewish refugees 
back in the land of Palestine, which at that time, of course, was under Turkish domination. They didn't get very far, but they kept working, and a few people came back. The next big event happened in the year 1897. In that year, Dr. Theodore Herzl, the great Jewish patriot, called a conference, the first Zionist Congress in Basel, Switzerland, in which um, the Jews of Europe got together to see if something more on a national scale couldn't be accomplished to send more Jews back and resettle the land of Palestine. Then in 1917, a very important landmark in the resettlement of the Jews to the land occurred. In that year, the British Foreign Minister, Lord Balfour, declared that it was in the intention of His Majesty's government to present a plan for the recolonization of the land of Palestine and make it into a national home for the Jewish people. And that same year, 1917, witnessed the lifting of the Turkish desolating power by the British Army. That was in the First World War, of course. And then Britain got a mandate by the League of Nations over the land of Palestine, and from 1922 until about 1938, quite a considerable amount of colonization was permitted by Britain back to this land of Palestine. Now we're getting into modern history. The next important year is 1947. For in that year, the United Nations decided that the land of Israel, the land of Palestine, should be partitioned and a good chunk of it given to the Jews for resettlement. Then you remember that in 1948, a very historic landmark uh, occurred when the Jews declared themselves into a Jewish sovereign state. Now this was a very important date, 1948, because for the first time, in about 2,500 years, the Jews had their own land, they had their own government, they had their own prime minister, they had their own parliament or congress, they had their own laws, their own navy, their own air force, all things necessary for the proper functioning of a modern state. And now, since 1947 and 8, over 2 million Jews from nearly 100 countries of the world have resettled this land. And this year, 1963, it is estimated that 100,000 Jews, mostly from North Africa and Romania, will be taken back into this land. The result of the colonization and the repopulation of the land of Israel has been that the Jews have made amazing strides in the last decade in the fields of banking, agriculture, irrigation, mining, smelting, solar energy, atomic energy, tourism, all manner of industry, and so forth, Many of, uh, much of which you have no doubt read in the newspapers and other publications. Just this month, the first installation of the Zarkin process for the sweetening of seawater has been installed in Elat, the um, port down at the end uh, of the um, uh, Gulf of Aqaba in the south. I want to now read you 
this fact, that God knew and prophesied that this very thing which we are now seeing happen before our eyes was to come to pass. Now look at the 36th chapter of Ezekiel at verse 34 and 5. The desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, This land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. So here this land that had been let go had developed into a, into a desert, into a wilderness under the hand of the Turk for many, many hundreds of years. Now, before your eyes and mine, has been repopulated by an industrious, hard-working and intelligent people. The land is being built up. The cities are being rebuilt. The wastes are being irrigated and reclaimed. And the land, after a while, is becoming to look very much more like the Garden of Eden and is the, uh, the admiration of many countries of the world. Now, you might say, well, I don't know, it, it, it is kind of, I have a brother, he's an atheist, and uh, I told him about this, and he, yeah, he says, um, it is sort of a remarkable thing at that, that uh, these people, these wealthy Jews, would want to go back to a run-down country like that. It, it is a sort of remarkable thing, but he couldn't see any real significance to it at all. The blind, Jesus said, see not, because they will not see, and they have ears, but they hear not. But now I want to show you something more about this fulfillment. Some, I want to show you two remarkable things going right, reaching right down into the very details of fulfillment regarding this return of the Jews to this land of Palestine. And I want you to open your Bibles and look at the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, and I will show you one of the most phenomenal things that has ever happened in modern times. And this occurs in verse 8 of the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, and this is what the prophet says. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the coast of the earth, and with them the blind and the lame, the woman with child and her that travaileth with child together, a great company shall return thither. Now, what's remarkable about that? Well, I don't know if any of you are immigrants into America, or whether you have any relatives that are immigrants, but if you have, you will know that to get into a Canada or the United States, you have more red tape, forms to fill out, blood tests, needles, pills to take, and everything else that you ever saw in your life. You've got to have certification that you're Simon Pure, that you have no disease, that your relatives will look after you if, you're, if you collapse, that you'll not be a charge on the state. And after you fill out zillions of forms, you've got to give some payola on the other side of the ocean and more payola on this side before you can get over here. And it's the same in our country up in Canada. But here is a country, Israel, that all you have to do is to be Jewish. There's no screening. Can you imagine the USA or Canada letting in the blind, the lame, the halt, the diseased mentally, the afflicted physically, the people who are broken in spirit, mind, and body? You couldn't get into the USA if you paid the president himself if you had all those troubles wrong with you. But the nation of Israel, my friends, not only let them in, but welcomed these people in who were lame and blind and halt and deaf and penniless 
to come into this land. There is a remarkable fulfillment reaching down to the very people that maybe you and I know in this 31st chapter of Jeremiah at verse 8. And one just as remarkable perhaps occurs in the 23rd verse of the 31st of Jeremiah. And this is also very interesting to me. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as yet they shall use this speech or language in the land of Judah and in the cities thereof when when I shall bring again their captivity or restore their fortunes. That's now. Now what speech is the national tongue of Israel today? It is the ancient Hebrew language. When the state of Israel was formed in 1948, there was a big uproar. What language are we going to have for the language of Israel? Some of them wanted English because it was the language of the mandate power. Some of them wanted Spanish because it was easy to learn. Some of them wanted French because it was the language of diplomacy. Some of them wanted Yiddish because it was sort of a, a tongue that a lot of Jews throughout Europe knew. But the government decided one late one night at about 12 o'clock midnight that the language would be Jewish, Hebrew, the ancient Hebrew tongue. Nobody hardly in Israel knew it. They had to undertake a vast teaching program to teach people from Morocco and the USA and Germany and Canada and Iceland and the South Seas, all these people with different tongues. They had to undertake a vast teaching program to teach these people the ancient speech that the prophet Jeremiah said they would use in the land when when I shall bring again their captivity. Now there are two details of fulfillment that are nothing short of phenomenal. Anybody that can believe that this is the happening of pure chance has a greater belief in the miracles of pure chance than common sense would allow him, I think. Now what's the result of this? I think we can say that we don't care whether you're an atheist, an agnostic, a scoffer, a communist, or what you are. I think we can get you to admit two things. One, that it was prophesied in the Bible authentically, the age of which is not under dispute, that this people would be scattered throughout all nations of the earth, that their land would be desolate, that they would be a byword and an astonishment, a hissing throughout all nations of the earth, that they would retain their identity throughout many centuries, and that at the last time they would be regathered into this particular piece of real estate at the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, everybody will admit that those things have been prophesied and that those things have been fulfilled. The only thing you don't maybe want to admit is whether it is a coincidence or whether God really did give this as a witness to the authenticity and veracity of his word. We believe that such a large number of phenomena, such as we have outlined here tonight, could not possibly be the result of fortuitous circumstances or the efforts of blind chance. We believe that this indeed shows the finger of God working among the nations and particularly on behalf 
of this historic people. Well, now I want to close, but before doing so, I just want to have a word to say that the final chapter isn't here yet. Yes, two million Jews are back in the land. They are being supported both by their own prodigious efforts and also by the vast money contributions of the Jewish community in other parts of the world, particularly the USA and English-speaking countries. But the strange thing is that there is something even more significant than anything we've talked about tonight, and that is simply this that it is out of this state, this nation of Israel, that peace will come to this earth. Peace, my friends, is not going to come from the efforts of the United Nations. It is not going to come from disarmament conferences in Geneva, Switzerland. It is not going to come because Mr. Kennedy is going to visit Mr. Khrushchev, or both of them visit the Pope. That is now peace is going to come on this earth. Peace is going to come as an outcropping of the restoration of this ancient people back to their own land. Now let me show you how we know that. It occurs, the, statement for that, the proof for that statement occurs in the second chapter of Isaiah. And listen to this. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, because out of Zion, not out of Washington, or Ottawa, or London, England, or Bonn, or any other city, but out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That happens to be the capital city of this modern state of Israel. And that's the city from which the word of the Lord is going to go to all nations. And what's going to be the result? He shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So from this nucleus, Jerusalem is the capital city of this state, from this exact city, the law of the Lord is going to go forth to all nations, and all nations will eventually submit and obey that word. The reason being that Christ will by that time have returned to this earth and taken unto himself the kingdom. The Messiah of Israel will be installed in Jerusalem as king not only of the Jews but of the whole worldwide earth. Now I want to draw finally your attention to a little verse in the book of Psalms. You may wonder why Christy Elkins are all excited about the Jews going back to Palestine. Well, it's, you may say, well, very interesting. Uh, it's uh, quite remarkable, that's true, but I don't know why you're so excited about it. What's that got to do with anything? Well, there's a little verse here in the book of Psalms which tells you what it has to do with everything, and that is in the 102nd Psalm at verse, I want to read verse 13 to 16. 
And this is what the psalmist, who was also a prophet, said. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion. That's the hill adjacent to the city of Jerusalem. You can go there, take a plane over there, and go and see it right today. For the time to favor her, yea, the set time is come. There's a time to favor this development, says the prophet. For thy servants take pleasure in her stones, and favor the dust thereof. So the heathen shall fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth thy glory. Now here comes the little verse about why we're so excited about the development of the nation of Israel. Why? Because we know that the time is coincident with the coming of Jesus Christ back to this earth. And this is one verse that distinctly declares such. When the Lord shall build up Zion, and he's been building it up all these last few years, as we have mentioned, in the fields of agriculture, banking, mining, tourism, industry, and commerce, the land has been built up. When the Lord shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. That's how we know that the time is set for Zion to be fully favored. She's partly favored now, but when Jesus returns to the earth, she will be fully favored, because the law shall go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, we are living right now in the time, are we not, when the Lord is building up Zion. Well, I don't know how far the building has to go, but I suspect it is not much farther. Well, that is the time, says the prophet, that he, that's Jesus, shall appear in his glory. Now, again, a lot of people say, well, that's in the Old Testament. And uh, we don't have a copy of the Old Testament at home. Uh, what did Jesus have? If you tell me what Jesus said about this, I might believe it. Well, I'll tell you what Jesus said about this. And then we will draw this lecture to a close. You will turn with me to the 21st chapter of Luke. You will see what Jesus said on this very same subject. You remember that in the 21st chapter of Luke... The disciples, in verse 7, said, When shall these things be, Master? When? And Jesus proceeded then to tell them when these things would be. And down in verse 29, again he gives them a sign. He, God doesn't expect us to have blind faith in some mysterious thing that, that uh, we don't know what it's all about. And uh, he still expects us to go blindly on having faith? That isn't the idea at all. He gives us a sign. He answers the question, when shall these things be? And this is what he says, Jesus. Behold the fig tree. Now the fig tree, of course, is a symbol of the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. And he tells these people and tells us to behold the fig tree. Get your newspaper out and have a look at the fig tree. Have a look at what's going on in the nation of Israel and with the nation of Israel and all the trees. Now, what's he saying? He says, when they now shoot forth, ye see and know, not guesswork, but know of your own selves that summer is now nigh at hand. That's how we know because we see the fig tree shooting forth. The same idea as the Lord building up Zion. Know what? So likewise ye, when ye see these things come to pass, know ye 
that the kingdom of God is nigh at hand.